We acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, the traditional custodians of the land where we're recording. We pay respect to Elders past, present and emerging, and to all Indigenous peoples worldwide who are listening in. Hello and welcome to the Doyen Interviews podcast, part two. My name is Bridget Nathan and I'm a Melbourne-based architect interested in tapping into the careers of those around me whom I admire. In my experience, there's a wealth of information out there, not just in books, but also in the people you meet and the questions you may ask. Part one took place whilst I was a graduate. As we move into the second part, I'll be relating my own experiences as an architect to those I interview. I'll be chatting to both established and emerging practitioners. Thank you to everyone who's gotten involved in this project, and in particular, to the seven brilliant women who took part in the pilot series, which I launched on Parla just a couple of months ago. It takes a lot of guts to put your hand up for projects that are still raw and developing. It's been great to interact with people on Instagram as well. So thanks to everyone who's reached out. Also, thanks to Anon for the amazing introductory music. Thanks for listening. I look forward to continuing this journey with you. Thank you, Pearl, so much for joining me today. I'll just introduce you quickly. So I'm chatting to Pearl Ting Ting Ho, who's based in the US. However, I believe you are originally from Hong Kong, which is super yep. interesting. So it would be great if you could introduce yourself and maybe a little bit about your cultural background and where you've come from and moving to the US and sort of what was that like studying architecture? So um, I was born and raised in Hong Kong. And for anyone who's never been to Hong Kong, Hong Kong is a super dense, extremely vertical and very colorful Chinese city. However, even though, you know, it is currently a part of China up until 97, it was under British rule. And so the entire development of Hong Kong from a fishing village uh, into this international finance financial center uh, was truly developed as a British colony. So I grew up, like even in kindergarten, we would learn a song verse in English and then learn that exact song verse in Cantonese. And then, you know, and, or uh, yeah, so like always English and Cantonese was how I grew up communicating with everyone around me and, um, you know, in terms of education and like so media, like cartoons, movies, it was always English, Cantonese, English, Cantonese. So I, it, you know, it sounds cliche, but especially back in the day, it really was a perfect mix of kind of East meets West, which is super interesting. And I feel like I only really appreciated that when I left, and um, you know, to go to the US. Um, Hong Kong is also super colorful. Like when you go there, the buildings, um, a lot of the vertical housing is 
always like color blocked as a way of color coding certain you know, neighborhoods or certain developments. And, and so like, you know, very, like very often when you walk around, like you'll see like bright pink buildings and like purple and yellow color blocks. It's like really quite crazy, you know? And, and I think a lot of, a lot of that stuff is like quite famous on Instagram now. Um, but so basically I was born and raised in Hong Kong. And then I, um, went to the university of Virginia in Charlottesville for undergrad to study architecture. And it was a bit of a culture shock for sure. Uh, Charlottesville, Virginia is very quiet. Um, and uh, the university was founded by Thomas Jefferson, who's the third president of the U.S. And uh, and so the campus is also a, a UNESCO World Heritage Site, which was which really did make studying architecture there very special because every student there had such an intense love for the campus. Um, and so like you really learn to study buildings in a place where like a sense of place and history and identity is so important to everyone that's there. But like studying architecture there was still quite in a sense traditional. It was very, you know, like I, I felt like everyone had a very similar aesthetic. Like everybody loved nature and like, you know, the ideal goal for any building was to, you know, be sustainable and like be able to like meld with nature. Even, you know, even though that's a very noble goal, I felt like it, I felt a little limited by how it seemed like everyone felt that exact same way. So then after I were, after I studied at UVA, I worked in New York for two years and then I went to Yale for my master's where I studied for three years. And, um, and then at Yale, I actually felt like it was super different to UVA because, um, I was there in the last three years where Bob Stern was Dean. So he was Dean for like 20 years and my three years was his last three years. And, uh, and so it was kind of his swan song of like deanship where he would bring all his friends in to come teach. (laughs) It literally meant, you know, uh, like our final year, like some people would say that it was an old boys club, but even though, you know, and yes, it is, but the old boys club would consist of, um, Elia Zangelis of OMA, uh, Peter, Peter Eisenman, uh, Frank Gehry would come, you know, like, so it was like truly the classic old boys club. And actually our last year, Zaha, um, Zaha was also teaching, um, right before she passed away. So she was actually, you know, part around the school a lot, um, And so it was really amazing to be around these extremely different voices. Like everyone had a very strong opinion about what architecture meant and architecture should be. And I think, and that's definitely how Bob Stern wanted to curate the school was he wanted to have these extremely different voices. He wanted people to argue. He wanted people to feel super passionately about what architecture you know, means to them and, um, all the better if they, you know, scream and argue in front of the students, which really would happen sometimes. <laughs> and so that was like so different to UVA where everyone had this, had a similar idea about what our architecture was. So I really felt like, even though at Yale, like I felt like there wasn't one main school of thought, I actually felt like I emerged from there, um, much more, uh, confident in my own voice because I had to fight for it while I was there. Like people would challenge you and people would argue with you. And so you really had to like, um, establish yourself, um, 
fighting <laughs> while you're there. And I think everyone would probably agree with that. It's a fight. <laughs> and so how did you find the different architectural styles and the different ways that people represent drawings? Is that something that sort of started to happen when you were at Yale and has then had a bit of an influence on what we'll talk about later, which is your amazing um, side project? Yeah, so um, I think ever since I was a kid, I was always very influenced by many different mediums of art. Like I would, you know, I loved cartoons. I loved painting, like oil painting and also watercolor. And I think because as a kid, I loved all these different ways of producing images. I really brought that with me um, throughout school and but then really i felt like at yale i was able to channel that towards different means of representations in class because i felt like professors really encouraged that one of the classes or one of my studios was an urban studio with keller easterling and um we were doing these like i think other studios were doing master plans and they would approach it in a slightly more typical like master plan way you know like a giant drawing with like bird's eye view plan of, um, yeah, like of a city. Whereas with Keller, um, she encouraged the studio to break up into pairs and each, each pair would take on a portion of the city and our entire studio would work together. Um, to like, so basically the, the whole studio was producing the whole master plan, but we would each create like a little segment. And so we were working in a way where all of us, drew these massive axonometric line drawings that were that had like you know the crisp and precise detail of like a you know of any plan and section um, but had this like cartoony aesthetic to it that made it more approachable um, or made it more yeah like easily accessible to you know someone who wasn't just an architect so because we you know the idea was like our urban planning studio is for you know, people, it's not for architects. And so people need to be able to understand and read um, the plans for the city rather than just architects and planners. Um, like not like we didn't want to do a top down approach. So we had these amazing, um, be accurate and have a lot of information layered in, but also be really fun and whimsical at the same time. Um, I'll show you some of those drawings in a second. I, I can. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but like that was like the first time I was like, oh, my gosh, like architecture drawings don't have to be, you know, dry plans and sections or or even just renderings. You know, I always felt like it was either renderings that that, that would achieve the atmosphere of something or like more informative plans and sections. And in Keller Studio, we were really encouraged to just like have a giant axon drawing that had everything in it, the atmosphere, you know, the whimsical aspect, the colors, the information, the details, um, how people would use it, you know, because in the axon, we would have like people in it and, um, you know, populated throughout the drawing. So, um, yeah, so that was like a really fun way. I find that so interesting, especially as the world is moving to sort of outsourcing models and a lot of rendering can be done outside of the office. And, you know, it's like so many discussions at the moment about the role of the architect and if some of our skills are not going to be needed anymore and if, you know, they can just be done by people who aren't in the office. But I think kind of to me what you're saying as well is that 
the architectural drawing, it can have personality and it can have another side to it that's not just this is your room with, you know, um, the colour of the wall. Yeah, because, yeah, and especially if you're working on really big projects that have a huge vision for the city, it's not just about the structure and the physicality of it. It's also about the feeling and, yeah, like the artistic intent. Sounds like, yeah, you were really able to build up some skills in your own way of representing stuff there. Yeah, it definitely depresses me how sometimes in the real world, <laughs> like the the amount of which architects are reliant on outsourcing renderings can it, like is shocking sometimes. I've seen architects literally like build the like the most basic, you know, Revit model that's you know, honestly, just like blocking out the space and whatever, and then sending the Revit model to the renderer and be and telling them, okay, so you know, like uh, the mullions will be, you know, five foot space apart and they'll be bronze and like literally everything is done by the renderers. Like yeah. the renderers are basically designing, you know. So that makes me so sad when that happens. <laughs> and it yeah. really does happen a lot. Um, I guess it's also thinking about at what stage do you get the renders done to and yeah, maybe sometimes it happens too early. And if it's something where the design is finished and it's like right. afterwards right. and it's right. a, it's, a, it's a sales thing, maybe that's a different category. But, yeah, I totally agree with you. Like what we're talking about is like mid-design and it's yeah. things haven't been resolved and they are being resolved by someone who hasn't really been briefed on what the client wants, yeah, the, the intent yeah. of the project. That's yeah. so interesting. And, um, yeah, I mean, there's so many things we could talk about with you. It sounds like you've had a, um, a really great start to your career. Could you introduce a little bit about the side project that you've been working on? And just to sort of summarize, Pearl sent me some amazing drawings that she had been working on, um, really beautiful illustrations, which I'll show. And, um, yeah, it would be great to hear a little bit about what it is and how it started. Um, so my last year in grad school, I started, uh, designing for my, um, partner's toy company. And so that was kind of when I first started to, um, you know, design for children and uh, like they, they were yeah, actual physical products that would go out in the world. And so, um, you know, my, I, I always felt like there's often a childlike sensibility in my appreciation of images around me. And so, you know, yeah. it worked really well that, uh, and so, you know, so I was really excited to start, um, working on this project. And so, um, that was kind of how I started drawing, um, for children. But, uh, two years ago, I listened to a podcast on the daily, it's the New York times podcast. Um, and they interviewed these, I think they were like seven year old twin sisters. Um, and they had recently, they had been in the news recently back then because they, uh, one of the twin sisters became the very first girl to be accepted into the Boy Scouts of America. And so the whole podcast <laughs> was about, um, the difference between the Boy Scouts and the Girl Scouts in the U S which I had no idea like that there was like a huge difference. Um, and I couldn't believe that, you know, like this, I think, yeah, this was two years ago and I listened to this episode, but I couldn't believe that like, you know, in 
2017, um, it was still like very clear drawn, like Girl Scouts of America, they sell Girl Scout cookies and Boy Scouts of America, like they get to go camping and like build bonfires or whatever. So basically these two twin sisters, they were so eloquent. I was so impressed. Um, But one sister, she was like, I love the Girl Scouts. I want to stay in the Girl Scouts. Like, I love it. And the other twin sister, she was like, no, I want to go camping. I want to learn how to build campfires. Yeah, not bonfires. Uh, I want to learn, you know, how to make a slingshot. You know, I don't understand why I can't be in the Boy Scouts. And and they also emphasize that, you know, it wasn't that this girl identified as a boy or anything. She just straight up had to do the things the boys were doing. And one of the comments that one of the girls said was like, oh, I was really, I'm just sick of doing, you know, sitting, sitting inside and doing uh, and like um, drawing and coloring books, princess coloring books. So I like, so it was just this one comment. And I thought to myself, I was like, wait, really? Like, are we really still just, do we really just only have princess coloring books out there right now? And that started my research where I, you know, started looking into coloring books because, you know, coloring books are now quite a thing again. And there seems to be basically, well, and actually this is true for normal storybooks too, like children's storybooks and coloring books. There's like uh, two ends of the spectrum. On one end, there's like the more, maybe more cliche, like princess, unicorn, like more like fluffy, super uh, imaginary world. And then on the other end of the spectrum, there's like, you know, the life of Frida Kahlo and uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And yeah. Amazing for kids to learn about these amazing women. Unfortunately, for you know a six-year-old, that doesn't that it, it loses the imaginative quality of the yeah. former. And so I was, I realized, I was like, yeah, like we need, we, I need to produce something that you know maybe draws those two worlds together better. And so the concept behind um, my book, at which you know started off as a coloring book, but now is going to be a full, it's a fully illustrated storybook, but also they stand alone as um, images as well. But uh, is that they um, tie those two worlds together by having girls in each scene be performing at the top of their career in, you know, something that's rooted in reality, but presented in a really magical, colorful, whimsical way. So there's Ellie, the veterinary radiologist um, who has lab mice assistants. There's Marnie, the marine biologist who surfs with sharks and dolphins. Um, there's Ray, the robotics engineer who loves unicorns. And so she, you know, became a robotics engineer and builds her own unicorns. Um, and so it's (laughs) still trying to, um, you know, play with everything that, um, everything that, uh, you know, I guess draw, you know, drawing from like STEM careers and like these like badass careers, like arch- there will be an architect, of course. Don't worry. I'm just working on that. <laughs> it's so it's like too close to home that one. <laughs> to, like, yeah. <laughs> You're like, um, do I draw me? But and yeah, but still, you know, pl- uh, including the imagination and the fun whimsical magical stuff that um that girls really like and really enjoy um um yeah and like I guess try to invent a new aesthetic um yeah that's 
Yeah. <laughs> are they going to be colouring books or their illustrations? Like will, will there yeah. be versions that the girls can colour in themselves and then the ones that you've coloured, they're sort of like a final version that you've done yourself that you'll put on display? Yeah, so the the ones I've done so far, I think, um, yeah, so they will be part of a fully illustrated storybook. Um, but my plan for the coloring book is to invite other um, fem- other um, architects that I know, like other yeah, other women actually who um, are in architecture and also love illustrating and drawing to do a scene of their own and then combine a lot of different drawing styles uh, into one coloring book. Because I think it's also important that um, young children are able to see different drawing styles. I think like growing up, you know, like I think kids are, it's like typical for kids to only experience like a super cutesy cartoon graphic. And I think um, it would be nice for, yeah, for, uh, for children to like have one book and experience many different graphic um, sensibilities. So they, yeah, that's amazing. I find that such a good idea, especially with kids spending so much time on technology these days. And I'm sure there are like many, many parents who are looking for ways to inspire kids to actually get out there and draw and trace over stuff. And that's so cool, especially that you're coming at it from such a, like a rich architectural history and yeah like it's it's really it's got a, um, an amazing story behind it that's so cool thank you do you want to do one <laughs> yes <laughs> we got to do one <laughs> yes. that is so cool yes, yes. <laughs> yeah that's so cool um yeah like just like on that topic of drawing like it's definitely something that I feel like you know in my previous job um you know, I had my review recently and they said some really positive things. And one of their comments was kind of about drawing and about being able to communicate stuff really quickly. And that's like something that I'm working on as a professional at the moment, because I've noticed my two directors from the company I've just finished up at, and also a lot of the other people that work there, they have such an amazing visual ability to just Mm. sketch out an idea and to sketch a detail on site with the client, with the builder. Um, And they're not, yeah, like it's not on show. They're really the skills that they have. We're kind of from that crossover generation where it's like, we learned some stuff by hand. We learned a lot more stuff on the computer. Our main skills are the computer. So that's what I generally focus on. But then as you step up in your role as an architect, you really are like required to have those like drawing, basic drawing skills. It's an interesting point because now that you say that, when I think about all my favorite drawings in the last few years, like none of them are truly, none of them are like hand and paper. You know, it's like, of course, like uh, on mouse, on computer. Um, and uh, I wonder, yeah, like I, you're so right. I, I definitely have sat in a meeting where somebody, you know, someone more senior, like he like picks up a pen and just quickly draws out, like, yeah, communicates an idea super quickly. And I think yeah. like, and I'll like sometimes kind of beat myself up inside and think like, oh, damn, like I can't really do that. Like I, I, I kind of need to go back to my computer and then super quickly produce something on the computer to show the idea. Yeah. I mean, I guess I, like I sketch an idea, but like, I would feel, I feel like I would feel more confident, um, 
like for example, actually the, the drawings for the, um, for this children's book, um, some of them I will actually like for the, the, um, robotics engineer drawing, they're the two KUKA robots at the back. I actually modeled them in Rhino and then rotated them, you know, oh. in, in two different ways and then just like made 2d <laughs> for, made, <laughs> for that, that, that command. It's just, you know, projecting the lines basically. Um, so that I didn't have to draw it twice. And, you know, and so that's a skill that like our generation has, like that we know how to like work super efficiently in order to produce these results that have the maximum impact without like having to draw the two robots um, slowly twice, you know? And so that's like something that I think is actually our skill and is our strength. And, um, and certainly that senior architect who can sketch would not even think to do that. Um, um, and I wonder if that's something that we should also, yeah, lean into more that, you know, that we, um, can think more fluidly with how we use technology, that we're not just, we're not truly like beholden to these tools as, um, um, as a lot of maybe like the, the, the older generation is like, I think when you, it's also really depressing sometimes when you walk around and you look at buildings and you think like, Oh, there's that Revit family. Like I recognize <laughs> this Revit mullion, you know, or I recognize that Revit, uh, balcony. It's like so depressing. And I think in old, the older generation, like you kind of, they, they don't know how to use the tools more fluidly and they, kind of just use the tools as, um, yeah, just like as a way of designing, which is not, which, yeah. which also, yeah, just is not the way it should be. Um, yeah, that's such a good point. Um, just like, yeah, copy paste or yeah. yeah I imagine, um, I mean, architects, I always believe that architects are really passionate, but I guess we sit within this like larger building industry and, um, yeah, like there's definitely it, – it also gives a way to resolve projects quickly um, by people who may not have the same um, interests in it being this highly resolved, beautiful space. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's such an interesting point. And, yeah, like I guess kind of like what you're saying, I'm loving this idea that we could start to think about using technology as a way to, yeah, become more fluid and to change things and to tap into the skills that we have. Because, yes, it is pretty amazing, like some of the stuff that you do and you think, yeah, you can model up something that's a huge scheme so quickly and then, yeah, to have the ability of what you're saying to change it quickly and to sketch over it and um, sounds like skills that could be really important to be yeah, taught in architecture school as everything develops. Yeah. Did you, do you think like when you were in school, um, did you, were you ever encouraged to like use mixed media? Like, you know, were, would you, for one drawing, would you use like Rhino, Illustrator, Photoshop, InDesign, blah, 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 for like one drawing? Is, is that? Um, yeah, definitely. Yeah. I, yeah, I was having a conversation similar to this with a friend um, late last week because she's starting to work as a tutor and she's mm. trying to think about ways to encourage students to explore their creativity and to establish the design studio. And so I, I actually did 
a Bachelor of Interior Design and then I did my Master's in Architecture. And the school that I did the Bachelor of Interior Design in, um, they've recently become accredited to become an architecture school in Melbourne. And and so she was thinking about um, applying to work there and I would also love to work there because – um, yeah, like I loved both my master's and my, um, my bachelor, but the bachelor degree that I did, um, even though it was interior design, it was actually very architectural in terms of how it was being taught. It was almost like um, the tutors wanted us to be sort of yeah, coming at interior design from that interior architecture um, yeah. point of view. And so, um, yeah, like when I did interior design, it was really – drawn back. Um, the way that we were encouraged to present everything was very sort of from a modernist perspective, a lot of white card models, um, you know, black lines only. And then, yeah, everybody, you know, they never said in the presentation, like you have to do it like this, but you could just sort of tell that they just wanted it to be a very stripped back way, um, of doing things. And I think that that gave me a really great base for looking at things um and then when I went on to do my master's yeah I mean we did a semester in Rhino and that was all very um like centered on renders and presenting these concepts and um I loved that as well but I often think that um it is good to have that sort of yeah more stripped back base and then once you think about things from yeah like a really minimalist outlook then you can start to overlay like using different programs and you can understand that yeah you'll get this one perspective best using rhino um or you know like you can for example model a roof better in rhino um and pull it into revit um so i guess as well like it's about understanding how you use those different programs and being able to combine them um, to use them like to the best of your ability or yeah, like a project I worked on recently at work was a town planning application. So I ended up doing all of the more illustrative stuff in mm. Illustrator and just like setting them up as elevations, which was um, something that someone at work recommended to me. And I thought it was a great idea because it meant that, yeah, like we didn't have a lot of time, but the town planning application did have to be, you know, quite creative. So it was thinking about what is that town planning application in terms of just seeing the facades going to look like. So then it's about putting that idea in your head of, okay, I'm working on a town planning application. There's going to be no 3D work involved, but I don't want to just be something that I've done in Revit um, and then I've just taken the, you know, the, the facade um, elevation views because that's like for your mind, like how do you – yeah, so, um, yeah, definitely I find that, like, so interesting. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I guess, like, what um, what are you up to next? First next step is to finish writing the actual narrative that uh, goes behind the drawings, and it will eventually become a storybook. And, um, and then I will be, you know, working with, other female architects to do their own scenes and gather it together into a coloring book. So for that, it would just be line drawings. Um, and so those are two products that, um, I hope to be able to produce by, I I would hope by the end of this year, but that's truly hoping. (laughs) That's hoping that (laughs) I have enough time outside of work to be doing it. Um, 
And I, you know, and I guess depending on the reception of it, like I would love it if it would become more of a series, like maybe like the second book is like all to do with architects or like the third one is all to do with engineers or the fourth one is all to do with doctors, but like all have like this like weird whimsical draw, um, call it graphic quality to it. Um, just now when you were talking about like the different using the different mediums for drawing, um, it made me think of my, I I wanted to talk about this too. This was my very last studio, um, in grad school with, um, do you know fat, the studio fat in London? Yes. It's Sean Griffith and, uh, uh, Sean Griffith and Sam Jacobs. So they actually broke up, but the company dissolved, but they came to teach the two of them my last semester. And they're like my, the drawings that I produced in that studio are so different to all my other architecture school drawings because rather than, um, I feel like typically, you know, when we do drawings, we're kind of, we're like designing the building and then, um, and then you're trying to like figure out how to represent it. Usually like you're like trying to, um, yeah, or like, you know, plans and sections and models and renderings. They're usually, they're, they're representations of what we think we want to build. But in the fat studio, um, rather than approaching the project by designing the building and then figuring out how to represent it, we were developing like the qualities and the atmospheres of space and then inventing how like, a building can embody those characteristics. <laughs> and I know it sounds super abstract, but like basically, I'll show you the draw. Actually, let me just quickly, I can quickly send you. Can I send something over here on Skype? Let me just, oh, yeah, so, um, start sharing the screen. Yeah, okay, hang on. I have it pulled up. Uh, awesome. Can you see? Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. So with this studio, we actually started. Oh, wow. That's amazing. They're really weird. Like everyone's always, when I go for architecture interviews, they're always like, wait, these are, this was in an architecture school studio. Um, and basically we started off by studying um, grids, like literally just like grids on paper, like different structure grids, you know. And, um, and then our next exercise, we literally drew three, three things out of a hat. Um, one was an architect, one was a landscape and one was like, um, it was just like some sort of like career. I forget like a, some, some different type of career in the arts. So I drew, um, out of the hat, I drew Leon, uh, sorry, Ivan Leonidov, the, uh, Russian constructivist, archi- uh, socialist architect, um, right. Uh, I drew sports fields as my landscape and then I drew film as my like sort of like, you know, other career. And these three things, like we were supposed to take graphic cues from these three things and populate our grids. So the way I did it was like, so this grid here, um, this was actually drawing from um, equestrian and like all these different like markings and all the different um, measures are actually taken from like equestrian jumps and like all the different types of, I guess, yeah, just the, uh, the spacing of how someone, um, goes through their jumping routine or dressage routine. Um, and then it was also populated with Ivan Leonidov's like constructivist geometries. Um, wow. and 
it that was so cool. Oh my god! <laughs> it was really a really fun studio, but it was also so hard because it was so abstract, yeah. you know. And it, the idea was really trying to push us to be inventing our own like drawing qualities. So this wow. one here, this oh, one, um, so cool. <laughs> Thank you so much. This <laughs> one is uh, rock climbing. Um, so it was drawing from the cues of like, um, like how a rock climber might map his path. Um, the colors are also taken from rock climbing. And then once again, the same sort of geometries taken from the socialist campus that Ivan Leonidov designed. And then this line here, this like wonky, kinky line is um, taken from Eisenstein's film diagrams. He's like, he used to diagram the lighting and the sound of all of his scenes. And when you look at them, they're like, kind of like, they're all, they're basically exactly like this. Like he like diagrams out um, the sort of sequence of how lighting and sound would work in, in one of his scenes. So it was like these three very different graphic languages mixed into one image where like, you know, rock climbing would never exist on the same image as Eisenstein's line or Ivan Leonidov's constructivist campus. But we, um, you know, Sean and Sam were trying to get us to, yeah, just like throw everything together and organize it in a way that would hopefully generate a spatial quality. Um, This one is a swimming pool with um, also a different type of Eisenstein film diagram that he did. So, so it was just like, uh, like the swimming pool markings. And, um, this one is actually a golf course. (laughs) Um, I did many variations of this, but, um, yeah, golf course maps are so weird. Have you ever seen them? They look like little, they basically look like these little worms. They're just like these green blobs everywhere. Um, there's something very beautiful about golf course maps. Um, and yeah, so like, so it was really a crazy studio. Um, and then from there we actually end up having to build something physical. So this was the, this was like the artifact that I had to make, uh, or that, yeah, that I designed and it was supposed to, um, reflect the quality of one of our drawings. So this was actually, this is actually like a seven foot tall, panel um that I cast in place and um and it was trying to embody the sort of fun bouncy qualities of the rock climbing drawing I mean it was like uh, I wouldn't say it was particularly successful but you know at least we had to try to um physical yeah like have you know create something Uh physical that people had to react to in space um so people had to walk around and touch it and um oh this was like another variation of (laughs) of trying to achieve those qualities um but yeah so this is just like such a crazy different studio that I took you know I felt like it was my last studio in school and I felt like it flipped everything that I learned on its head where you know once again, like these were a type of architectural drawing that had personality, that had um, precision and information in it, but also um, had like a, a quality that, you know, normal plans and sections or even a rendering would never really be able to achieve. Yeah, that's so cool. And so how did you do these drawings? So these were... I would start in Rhino. Um, I would draw a lot in Rhino and then I would bounce back and forth between Rhino and Illustrator. So 
line work and colors. A lot of the time would be an illustrator. And then actually sometimes uh, I would also hand paint like some textures and like scan it to incorporate it in, even though, eh, I mean, I, I feel like they don't really affect it as much, but I was just trying to layer in many different um, textures and ways of drawing into, into the one drawing. Um, yeah. yeah. But it was definitely a lot of bouncing back and forth between Rhino and Illustrator, mostly. That's so cool. Which is actually similar to how I'm drawing with the uh, for the children's books. It's also back, bouncing back and forth from, uh, from Rhino and Illustrator as well. Yeah, that's yeah. so cool. It would be cool if you could take some um, – you might already be doing this, but um, like record some progress videos or um, oh, like yes. yeah, screenshots yeah. of what you're doing because I could imagine like that kind of thing. Like kids would probably pick it up and do it and then yeah. maybe, yeah, later down the track actually might want to revisit it and realize like, oh, this is actually coming from all of these architects who have, you know, yeah. studied in all different parts of the world or, you know, with all different um, tutors or what whatnot. Um, and yeah, they might want to like research a little bit about the background. That would be so cool. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. How exciting. All right. Well, I might start to wrap it up. Um, okay. I, I guess to finish, like one point that I'd be really interested to hear about is, um, do you feel that the work that you're doing, like, and I'm sure so many people feel like this in terms of university gives you sometimes this free range where you can explore all these different drawing styles and um, yeah. Yeah, take on projects in your own right and then you start working and um, yeah. it feels like sometimes like you're stepping two, two steps forward, one step back um, and you have, yeah, you can have this amazing, these skills and sometimes I think at work, oh, do they see it? Do they know that I can do this? Do they know that I could do that? And yeah. how do I can to them that I think that the drawing doesn't need to be like this it could be something different um how do you see yeah like do you see yourself applying some of these skills um into your architectural career at the moment or do you see it something that you might continually start you know continue to work professionally and build up that dialogue of communication which is useful in its own way because it, it is professional and it's reacting to budgets and um yeah. to restraints but do you ever see that they'll like is are that do you have aims in the future to sort of combine this with your like professional work as an architect yes yes um I definitely did not see myself or well I tried um in my in my current job uh and uh, uh and, you know, realized that with time constraints and with budget, yeah. ultimately no one's really going to care much about, you know, but I, you know, there are, there are ways of, you know, slightly incorporating things like, you know, when I'm doing diagrams of site studies, like things that are like not as important with, you know, like they're not like the contract documents or anything like that, like with the site studies and diagrams and uh, the early concept phase, I was, I felt like I would be able to throw that in more, especially if I'm the one who's controlling or in charge of the entire presentation. Like I'll just like throw in things that I you know, think would be fun. And, and sometimes I get away with it basically. Um, but I think that, I, I mean, I, I definitely 
aim for, you know, in the future, like I would love to have my own practice. Like I would love to be able to incorporate, um, this fun inventive way of drawing as a means of designing, um, productively, um, into, into the way I work and into the way like the team works. I think a lot of time people, but you know, they might look at these drawings and they'll think like, Oh, they're so naive. These drawings, like they're not productive, but I guess the point I want to emphasize is that I think they should be productive and they should be efficient. They should be able to communicate as efficiently, if not more efficiently um, than, you know, other drawings. Like they shouldn't just be like, oh, these are just fun, naive drawings. Like they should be like, yeah, like taken seriously. And they should be, um, uh, be able to communicate an idea, um, which really is all you want, right? Like you want to be able to communicate that idea. Yeah. Yeah. So I think I, you know, definitely it's something I want, will continue to work on myself. Like maybe not while, while I'm employed that I would be able to implement it at my job, but definitely in the future, like I would love it if this was like a a primary means of working, that would be amazing. Yeah. I think, um, there's kind of similarities between that earlier discussion we were having before we started the recording, which is about different people's personality types at work. And I can, I can totally identify with that being someone who's seen as nice and friendly and bubbly. And sometimes, yeah, that like the more softer qualities can be seen as negatives and, um, yeah, like I'm really glad you said that because it sort of has planted some ideas in my head because I've been thinking about that a lot recently too. Like it's definitely yeah. my personality style to, um, yeah, to like go out of my way to accommodate people. And I, I think that I do it because I think it's helpful to the project and it's helpful to bring people together. It's, you know, it feels better. Um, but I can definitely see like in what you're saying with your drawings, like sometimes things that are more, um, fun, they're colorful, they're playful. You do worry that they're not going to be taken seriously. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Like, I think that's something definitely to challenge because they're amazing drawings. They're axometric. They're very architectural and, you know, I think that there's definitely something in that to think about, like in terms of being an architect and the future and not having to feel like you have to put on this like serious face to get something done. Like having that element of playfulness is just as intelligent um, and just as rich and especially drawing on like your cultural heritage and what you were saying about the buildings being so colourful and um, all that kind of stuff. Like that's like super important for architecture to have that understanding of the world. So yes, super exciting. (laughs) I'm really, you know, I'm so like, I want to remain really positive. I I feel like a lot of my friends and actually, I mean, me included, like some, we've already been feeling rather jaded having been working in like a corporate world the last few years. But I really, I really want to remain optimistic that our generation is really going to change things like, you know, and something else about like being soft at work too. Like you learn really quickly that if you are soft, like you do get taken advantage of. And, you know, if you're the nice one, who's like always like finishing your own work and then, and then, you know, helping other people, then other people will start taking advantage of that very quickly. And, um, and so it's like, so hard to draw that line, especially when you're not working for yourself, like to, um, 
yeah, like how do you really, I guess, establish yourself in your own independent voice and be like, you know, uh, recognized as a strength to be, uh, sorry, as a force to be reckoned with at work, like that you're not just like a nice girl that's going to help everyone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, I can totally, yeah, totally um, understand that. And yeah, I think as well, sometimes if you're the person that's always helping others and always accommodating for others around you, those skills, they're not always recognized. Yeah. And so when it comes to the review time or when it comes to um, doing your timesheet, for example, mm-hmm. it's like, you're not always going to remember that half an hour that you had a conversation with someone who was upset or that 10 minutes that you spent talking to the quiet person, you know, like they're all like soft skills, but architecture is like that we're based on social connections. That's how you win work. Um, so I guess like, yeah, something that I'm thinking about as well is, okay, maybe in the workplace, those skills aren't always recognized, but you take that out as a professional and you go and like get your own clients and start to work for yourself. Those skills are going to become invaluable. Um, and yeah, being able to like forge connections with people and listen to them and come up with unique strategies, like in the long term, um, it's so important. So I guess it is a bit of that, like, yeah, moving forwards and moving backwards in your career and, um, yeah, starting to realize when you do get taken advantage of and yeah. when you need to change. Yeah, that's so interesting. Cool. Well, thank you so much for your time. Um, of course, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so lucky to be able to talk to people about what they're doing and, um, yeah, to start to reach out to people. Yeah. Over the years. I mean, so. this really is like the best thing about Instagram is making these connections. Like, yeah, I, yeah. This, you know, we would never have stumbled upon each other <laughs> if it were not for Instagram. Yeah. Yes, so exciting. Okay, well, um, thank you so much. And I'm just going to press stop recording one second. Um, Yeah, thank you so much for your time. Of course, thank you so much. Let's keep in touch.